Okay, we're set. Yeah, good to go. Your guest's on. Go ahead. Okay. Steven? Yeah. Yeah, you can start. Uh, no music intro? I'll have Casey put the music in after. Oh, say that again? The music will be put in after. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, I'll begin now. All right. Welcome to PRN's Progressive Radio News Hour. I'm Steve Lenman. My guest today is uh, Professor Denny Raincourt. Denny, it's great to have you back on again. Uh, I had I had you scheduled when uh, I I had a conflict, uh, and the conflict, as you know, was my health, and I had no choice but to cancel a couple of programs a couple of times when you were on. But I'm delighted to have you back on again now to update me and uh, listeners with your personal situation. Certainly a major major issue, not just because of it how it affects you. But what affects you is what can happen to anybody and is happening to so many people in different ways. Innocent people affected so adversely in Canada where you lived, Denny, in the U.S. where I am, uh, and so many other places. Uh, just, just, just a wretched well, yeah, situation. Yeah, I'm, I'm really very pleased to be back, and I'm especially pleased that you're feeling uh, well enough, that your health is much better now, and you're able to do your usual incredible work of activism. I've been following some of your recent articles. Uh, congratulations. I'm, I'm happy that you're back. Oh, I really appreciate that, Teddy. I, I guess at my age, anything could happen. <laughs> what are you, you going to do? You can't hold back the sands of time. But let's get into some of the, uh, some of the issues. First of all, up, update me and listeners on your personal situation, because I'm a little bit behind on what's happening with you. Well, I can put it in a nutshell. Um, you know that I was fired, what I believe, under false pretext back yes. in 2009 by the University of Ottawa. That went to a very long arbitration and a very expensive and detailed arbitration. And the arbitrator uh, found against me, so did not overturn the university's dismissal of me. Uh, and, and my union is now appealing that decision because it feels that there was a major error in law in that decision, in particular, the, the, the argument on appeal is that um, there was evidence that was not proper evidence and that was not agreed to and not verified as true that the arbitrator expressly used in his decision. So that's a huge error of law. Uh, and that evidence was coming from a student spy that never showed herself, was never there to validate uh, her written report had, in fact, moved to Australia and uh, was away from the entire arbitration. The university never put forward a witness to validate that, that evidence, which was a report written by this spy who had, in, in a written email to the dean, admitted that she had a personal grudge against me. 
Danny, and, I, remember, I remember writing yeah, about so this that, guy. That is being appealed on that ground. I guess I, I better be careful not to go too far because I'm trying to put it in a nutshell. But <laughs> that's being appealed. The only comment I wanted to make was I had no idea this person moved to Australia. Yes, yes. The, the person disappeared from Canada. And, you know, as soon as it became clear that we had exposed the fact that a spy existed, uh, uh, we, we can't know all the reasons, we can't know uh, her motives, but we know her identity, we know who she was, how she worked. It was disclosed through the discovery process exactly all the communications she was having, the fact that she was spying on me uh, extensively, you know, on and off campus, including weekends and so on and used a false identity, uh, a, a false cyber identity with a false uh, Facebook page, false email, uh, under false pretense, collected information uh, against, uh, you know, from third parties, uh, informed the university administration about uh, student politics that, that was happening on campus that, of students that were uh, that had connections with me, all kinds of things like that. It was all exposed in the arbitration. So that in itself was a victory. Um, and then, and then yes, then the university wanted to use the information that she had produced, but they, they didn't authenticate it. And then the arbitrator took it as, as valid information and applied it incorrectly uh, to a situation that it didn't apply to. I mean, it was just incredible. I think it's a huge error of law that was made, and the union for the first time in their history, is appealing one of these uh, individual decisions. Mm. Uh, so the union's uh, backing, backing this entirely. I mean, it's necessary for the sake of justice. So that's going to appeal. And in fact, that, that evidence was the main uh, evidence that the university managed to uh, use that uh, convinced the arbitrator. So it's really... Uh, a very flawed decision, in my opinion, and the, 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 the appeal. The appeal will be when? Oh, well, uh, these things take an awful long time. Oh, that, um, that I know, indeed. Yeah, uh, there's no date set for the appeal itself. Uh, there are tentative dates set for some of the preliminary motions because there was an affidavit put in. I mean, it's just crazy, Stephen, if I were to get into it, how just crazy this is. Um, for example, uh, an important appeal like this, um, there was no transcripts of the actual appeal. So when you go to uh, appeal it, uh, sorry, the actual arbitration, so there's no recording or transcript of what was being said. The only official recording are the arbitrator's notes, but then when you go to appeal, you cannot access his notes. So, I mean, it's just, it's just insanity as I see it. And so the only way to argue about what happened during uh, the arbitration is for one of the lawyers on my side to put in an affidavit saying, well, this is what happened. I was there. I saw it. I heard it. This is what was being said, and so on. And then, because it's just an affidavit, it can be challenged. And so then the other side challenges the affidavit. And so that process of cross-examining the affiant and challenging the affidavit and because the lawyers are, you know, so busy that they can't just agree on a date next week, uh, takes years. Uh, literally, it's been taking a long time. So uh, that is just an added injustice, as, as far as I can see, um, from my perspective, you know. But that, so that's, there hasn't been a date set for that. 
that's where we're at on the on the dismissal, which is and even is even valid. once the appeal takes place, it can be months and months before a decision comes down. Yes, of course, yeah. In addition, so indeed, I mean, litigation indeed is a very very long process, very expensive, as you well know, Denny, and very very long. And uh, when the courts are stacked against you, and that certainly has been the case up to now in your experience, where they they, they go with the establishment, they go with the university, and they give you the third degree, it really is a disgraceful situation. Well, I don't want to comment on the arbitrator and how he could have made such a huge error in law, in my view. Uh, but then in addition to all of this, in in, right in the middle of this very lengthy arbitration, the university funded a huge defamation lawsuit against me. So independently, as a parallel process, the university funded a this lawsuit against me uh, that was put forward by a private person uh, um, and and who was also a professor at the University of Ottawa. And this defamation lawsuit was in relation to uh, a blog I had written on my blog, which is critical of the university, so the, the, the blog uofowatch.blogspot.ca. And so that lawsuit was a massive litigation. The university spent well over a million dollars just in legal fees and uh, to, to litigate uh, against me. And that went to trial. I was self-represented. I had no money to, 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 and I certainly would never have the kind of money that they were using to litigate this. And so, um, in the, as, as you know, it was public knowledge and it was in the media. In the middle of my address to the jury, the judge uh, interrupted and barred one of my defenses that I was explaining to the jury, even though it had not been struck from my statement of defense. And so that was a huge injustice, as I saw it, that's my opinion. And uh, that's, at that point, Cynthia McKinney stepped in and initiated a public petition against this unfair process, as, as she thought. And uh, that petition was, is, was very popular. Over a 1,000 people signed uh, that petition asking the Chief Justice of Canada to ensure, to, to, to fix this and to ensure a fair process. Um, there's never been a response, as far as I know, and that petition is still up. People are still can still sign it. it it's not hard to find on the internet. Um, and um, then, when as a result of that, I decided that it would be just as good for me to be absent rather than give the impression to the jury that there was a fair process going on. When I saw just how egregious something like that, you know, could occur right in, right in open court. So I stepped out at that point, and the media reported that I had called it a kangaroo court. And then the trial proceeded without me, and I lost the defamation trial. Um, and uh, now I'm appealing that uh, verdict to the Court of Appeal, which is the highest court in Ontario in the, in the province uh, uh, the Canadian province where this occurred. So <clears throat> that appeal is going forward. Um, my, my, one of my main grounds for appeal, well, is that this defense was denied me even before I could get started. But also another ground for appeal, I had several defenses that I had claimed in my statement of defense. Um, in, in, at the end of the trial, the judge told the jury 
there was no defense for them to consider. Um, so in a defamation uh, lawsuit, normally you, uh, the, the other side, the claimant, has to prove that this, these words could be defamatory. And once they've done that, then you have to prove that you have a defense. So in the common law, there are defenses such as truth and fair comment. So if you can prove that it was true or if you can prove that it was a fair comment based on facts, uh, in other words, that it was an opinion, uh, those are uh, very good. They're complete defenses if you can prove those things to the jury. But the judge instructed the jury that they were not to consider any defenses. So in a sense, as a result, the jury had no choice but to make the finding that it found. So I'm appealing on those grounds as, as this being just, just completely egregious and unfair. And um, it, is, it is shocking for a judge to make a statement like that. Uh, yeah. The little I understand about courtroom procedures is that a, if a, a defense uh, or a uh, 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 well, let's just say a defense can petition the court to throw the case out, uh, essentially claiming uh, there, there's no case, and what the terminology is, I don't know. And if, if they have grounds, uh, the judge can throw the case out. But to yeah. say that you, I mean, I, I mean, the judge in your case made an absolutely false statement and simply did not give you the chance to defend yourself in court. To me, that really is egregious. Yeah, or, or even, or even, you know, okay, I had voluntarily stepped out, but give the jury the opportunity to consider what the defenses are and whether or not they were made out, given given the evidence that was before the court. You know, uh, so yeah, that's to me that was just uh, outrageous, and so. Um, on that point, I, that, that, these are some of my main points uh, for appealing that decision. Uh, we'll see what the Court of Appeal does. Um, and in the meantime, I discovered that during the trial, the judge and the plaintiff's lawyer exchanged documents without telling me and did this out of court without anyone in open court knowing about it. Okay, so the contents of these documents were never disclosed. And so while I was preparing my appeal, because I have a right to appeal, I said, well, I wrote to the judge and I wrote to the other side, and at various times I've asked. I made 35 attempts, documented attempts, more than 35, to try and get these and other documents that I need for my appeal. And I documented all of this. And uh, I was never able to get these particular documents that were very important. They were an exchange about what the judge was going to tell the jury in his charge, in his instructions to the jury. So it's a key element of, of, of the appeal and uh, of what happened in, at trial. And so I'm trying to see these documents, which I was able to prove had to exist because they discussed their existence briefly once in open court. So that was in the transcript. And then when I wrote about it, they admitted that there were these documents in letters and so, but they won't give them to me. The judge is silent about giving them to me. He's, he, he doesn't want to uh, respond. And the other side has expressly said they will absolutely not give me these documents. They, they believe I don't have a right to have them. And so just to prepare my appeal, I had to make a motion to the Court of Appeal in order to attempt to obtain these documents. Um, because I, I believe I'm entitled to know what was said during trial as 
part of preparing my appeal and also to put those documents into my appeal book. And that motion was uh, a lot of work, and I got that in, I filed it, and now it was, in principle, the date for it to be heard. It's a motion to be heard in writing, and it was heard yesterday in principle. So I should be able to get the decision about whether or not I'm even going to be able to see documents in relation to important things that happened during the trial that I'm now appealing. I should know that uh, within you know the time it'll take for the judge to actually release the decision on this motion. It's called a motion for direction. Can you so that is the state of the legal processes. Um, my experience overall has been um, that self-represented litigants are not treated fairly in the courts. Uh, to me, this is unambiguously clear and are, are um, also mistreated, I would say. And there, there was a large national study in Canada about self-represented litigants that basically concluded the same thing, that there was this huge problem. In, uh, there was a lot of testimony in that study about people who uh, shared how, how the courts and the various uh, lawyers were treating them, and it was very, very bad. So, um, yeah... So I, I let me see now. I um, wrote an article about how self-represented litigants are treated in the courts, and uh, it's on the website Dissident Voice, and uh, you can search my name there, Denis Roncourt, as an author, and you'll find a list of my articles on that website, and this one in particular is called Rogue Courts in Canada Trample Self-Represented Litigants. So that's uh, been published on that site where I describe just in very, you know, brief form, I summarize uh, in this article all the various things that can happen to a self-represented litigant, and there are many, many footnotes and references, 31 of them in fact, uh, in this article, so you can get a real sense for this um, this horrendous situation. I mean, it, it completely blows away the notion that you can get a fair trial uh, when you step in front of a court in in Canada. Danny, I think uh, in your case, I think it's more than just a common denominator of a court believing that anybody who separate represents himself or herself uh, is not a legitimate uh, a defender as opposed to being represented by legal counsel. In other words, you're not really serious about what you're doing. But your, your case, I think, goes way beyond that because you've been involved in this for a long time. I think the Canadian system knows you. Uh, they understand you. You're going up against the University of Ottawa. I think they're basically supporting the system. And I think basically a kangaroo court system is set up to take on people like you, whether you're legally represented, whether you're self-represented. And, and I think the odds of you coming out ahead in this, in this system are very long. It doesn't mean that you can't do it, but it means that you have an extreme uphill fight to be able to get justice in a country claiming itself to be a democracy. And the same thing is true in America, and dare I say, I would imagine, in, in a good number of European countries as well, where ordinary people just don't have a chance against the system, the power system. It's embedded, and it usually comes up on top, if not every time, most of the time. Well, when the, I, I, I agree with that assessment from a sociological uh, analysis point of view. You know, the, the courts are there to maintain the system in place, 
to uh, put you in your place if, if you're critical of the system. Uh, there are many, many studies have shown this. Uh, so in a general sense, I agree with what you're saying. And, um, you know, in this case, uh, I was clearly being critical of the members of the establishment and of the establishment itself. And uh, I think I paid the price. That, that's my opinion of what happened. Uh, and you can tell that the courts are actually thinking that way because the very experienced lawyers that you're going up against People who've represented two of them that I went up against have represented prime ministers of Canada. Uh, so these very experienced people are constantly arguing about the fact that the claimant is high up in the legal establishment and about the fact that it's the University of Ottawa and that I was critical of the president of the University of Ottawa who used to be a federal minister and so on. They're going on and on about this, right? And they're going on and on about how I'm just a nobody and how I've, I've said uh, these horrible things and making all kinds of uh, spurious allegations like that uh, I'm an anarchist and they're using the street definition of anarchist you know, and I just want to create chaos and this kind of thing. And they'll, they'll use all these terms without, without proof, without establishing it in court. Now, why do they do that? It's because they believe that it's useful to do it. It's, that's my opinion. You know, this is, I can't, and why do the judges let them do it? Well, um, I guess I have to conclude it's because the judges want to hear it. They want to know what, what's going on in those terms. So instead of reprimanding uh, lawyers or at least slowing them down a bit and all this spurious stuff, um, they let it go. Um, and they'll say things, oh, well, that's not evidence, you know. Um, why do they let it go? Why? How is that a fair hearing? Uh, and why do these people put those arguments forward? Well, from a from a systemic analysis kind of perspective, I have to conclude: well, these guys know how the system works, and this is how the system works. Period. You know, <laughs> that's that's what I have to conclude. Um, so yeah, I think it's very fair to conclude that. Yeah. Indeed, so again, again, a terrible situation. We've been talking about it on this program for many, many months with no mm-hmm. sign of justice for you in sight at all. It's it's very scary because anybody can get into the same meat grinder, Denny. It could be a different situation than yours, but the meat grinder is still there, and if you get into the system, uh, it'll, it can chew you up and spit you out, and, and oftentimes, most of the time, there's not a lot you can do about it. Well, let's, let me put it this way. If there was a fair and just court system, and if it was about objectively looking at the facts and not allowing uh, this kind of prejudicial comments and all these you know, side arguments and things that they allow, but it, and, and if, the, and if the, uh, there was no appearance of bias, because it's huge appearance of bias in a, in a case like mine, uh, one of the judges... Uh, had a financial contract with the university about a scholarship fund who decided important things about my case. Um, another another judge, the trial judge, in fact, is a regular donator to the University of Ottawa, mm. uh, an annual donator to the University of Ottawa. And I was able to prove that and ask him mm. to recuse himself, and he refused. Uh, and, um, you know, all, there's all kinds of problems regarding even just appearance of bias 
which should just not exist. They should just clean up the system of anything like that. Just avoid it, you know. And I and I had asked the the regional chief justice to, to avoid any judge that would have any contact with the University of Ottawa. I'd asked that years before they they chose the trial judge. So. Uh, you know, but if there was a fair and just uh, system that eliminated all those problems, um, then they wouldn't sue you, obviously, because you would objectively look at what they're charging, and you'd objectively look at the facts, and you'd you'd objectively look at uh, you know what 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 they're claiming, and the fact that it was a comment, and and the fact that the comment is uh, based on facts that can be proven, um, and um, they would lose, because there's there still is on the books this um, charter right of free expression, um, and it has, in, in a case like this, where, there's, um, where my criticism was in relation to things of public interest, there's a, you know, there's a good protection for opinion in Canada on the books, but then when you look at how they run the trial and how uh, the courts are set up and what the courts allow, um, is that, that, that charter right just melts away. Um, it, it doesn't mean anything in practice, in practical terms. Uh, defamation law is, is a legal instrument uh, that allows powerful players to uh, censor anyone they want, anytime, by straight-up intimidation. That's, that's the nature of defamation law. That's why it was invented historically, and that's it's the reason for its existence presently from, from a, a systemic analysis point of view. So huge problems. And the, the law itself is, um, is defective in a fundamental way in terms of, of uh, justice principles because defamation is the only tort where... Um, malice is assumed. Malice of the communication is assumed, and damages are assumed. So the claimant doesn't have to prove any damages, that there were damages. They're entitled to money, uh, and they're entitled to uh, the presumption of, of malice as soon as they've proven that someone might consider this to be defamatory. Um, so that is, that is uh, the only tort that's like that. Um, you know, normally if you want to get money as damages from someone, you have to prove that there were damages. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a basic principle in law normally. Well, defamation law in the common law is not like that. Yeah. And so it, it, it's clearly something from, you know, the Middle Ages. <laughs> and it survived because it's an instrument that is used by... Uh, powerful people who want to shut others up, who want to shut up criticism. And even if, even if there are only these showcases where you get, you know, high damages and everything, it's enough to scare everybody off. So there's, there's an effect called libel chill, which is huge. So all the newspapers, everybody just is very careful. Um, the alternative of that is a society where you have free expression. And when you say something that's wrong, it can be challenged, and the solution is more expression. And nowadays, with uh, computers and the Internet, it's easy for people to defend themselves. They can just express a counter view, and they can put it on the Internet. They can put a comment on the same article in the newspaper that, 
that, that publish the thing they don't agree with, and you can let uh, presumably you can presume that that readers are intelligent and that they will make up their own minds, and in this way you can develop a healthy society by solving all problems related to words by applying more expression and more debate. That is, that is a, in my opinion, that would be a, a most healthy arrangement. But instead, we've got this, this, this defamation law that is uh, profitable to a lot of, a huge industry of defamation lawyers and, um, you know, that costs society enormous amounts of resources just to be able, just to allow people who have the resources to sue someone to shut them up. Um, so that I think is is, is a big problem. Uh, my the way I see it is uh, free expression and more expression should always be the solution. We're not talking about um, crimes here. We're not talking about physical harm. We're not talking about anything like that. We're talking about expressing opinions. Um, I mean, if you, if, so, yeah, for example, you, you can take this very far, this idea that free expression should, should be upheld. You can take it very far. For example, if, if someone is in a position of power, like a boss, who secretly tells other employers, who fires an employee and secretly tells other employees untrue things about the employee so that they'll never get a job again, well, that's, that's not just free expression. That goes way beyond that. That's using your power, your privilege, and the, rela- the, the relationships you have with powerful people to hurt an individual. So that's already against the law. There are laws against that kind of thing. You don't need defamation law to solve that kind of a problem. Um, and so, but in terms of just expression and opinions, it should be totally free, uh, especially when it's the small guy being critical of an institution or the establishment or the government or a corporation. Seems to me that's 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 the kind of free expression you need to have in a democracy, um, and that needs to be tested by more expression, more opinions. You know, the, these corporations and governments have huge resources. They can correct any mistake they want by just putting out a press release or talking to the media. In fact, a lot of the times they own the media. Uh, you know, it's easy for them to show the facts and correct anything that might be wrong, that might be harmful to them if, if that ever happens, you know. Um, so there's no, there's only negative sides to defamation law in our society, as I see it. Uh, I'm being very philosophical now, but that's what I think. (laughs) Well, I think it's true, Denny, and I've quoted directly from uh, the uh, Canadian Charter of Rights and many times from the U.S. Constitution. And the the words are very lovely, but when push comes to shove, uh, they don't protect ordinary people. The laws are there to serve the wealthy, the powerful, uh, the ones ones that really pull the strings and uh, and control the system. Uh, uh, And uh, the, the corporate 
interests, the big money, the money interests, uh, the basic category or characterization I use all the time. And again, I mean, even going back to the beginning of America, Denny, uh, the Bill of Rights were, were instituted by the founders as an afterthought four years after the Constitution with a lot of haggling, not to protect ordinary people, but to protect their own rights solely, not giving a damn about ordinary people. And I imagine it's the same in Canada as well. If you're rich, if you're powerful, you can get anything you want. The courts will take good care of you. You scratch their back, they'll scratch your back. But if you're an ordinary person, especially what I would call a disadvantaged person, uh, let alone uh, a tenured college professor, Denny, like yourself, but an ordinary person getting into that meat grinder, it's a very, very rough situation. You, uh, literally, you can get uh, chewed up and spit out without any justice at all. And a phrase I use all the time in the case of people unjustly accused of crimes, Denny, is to say in America, in countries like Israel, in Canada as well, these people are declared guilty by accusation no matter what no matter how innocent they are they can be they can be found guilty of things they never did in countries that call themselves a democracy but of course they're not that at all of course um i mean we we it's undeniable that we live in a in a power structure in a hierarchy that there there's a huge uh power of people at the top and people at the bottom of that pyramid have very little power and the institutions were spawned, developed, and influenced by this hierarchy. So they necessarily support that power structure. Uh, to think anything else is, is just a, a myth. Uh, they, they like you to believe that they're, you know, they like to give the impression that these institutions are for the people. But they're not because they've been designed, built, influenced. I mean, that's what lawmaking is about. Lawmaking is powerful influential members of society, corporations, financiers, and so on, influencing lawmakers to get the laws that they want and to tweak them how they want. And so that's why they're constantly, there's this law mail, they're, they're constantly putting out new statutes that are always to the advantage of the people who are influencing their production. I mean, you know that in the States, uh, these lobbyists and corporations will often write the first drafts of these statutes. I mean, it's just incredible. So the, it, it is childish to think, to, to even believe in the myth that you can get justice. You can to some degree in the sense that they have to keep that myth alive. And so they have to, in, in the really egregious cases which become public, they have to give you some measure of justice. But in general, as a system, it, these institutions obviously maintain uh, that unjust and undemocratic hierarchy. Um, there's, there's no doubt about that, I think, from any, any historian or sociologist uh, can attest to that, except the ones that, whose job it is to be service intellectuals who support these myths. Um, that's how I understand it. Um, yeah. Well, I've written a great deal, Denny, about the people I call political prisoners, mainly in America, some in Canada, a good number in Israel, a different situation than yours, Denny, but the common denominator is injustice in the judicial system, where once oh, the state goes after I mean, somebody, uh, they I mean, are literally screwed. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Supreme Court's... Uh 
Canada and elsewhere, any country. I mean, the, the stuff that they find to be legal is just unbelievable. You name it, you know? Uh, they'll give it a name that where it doesn't sound so bad, and it's okay. I mean, there was a recent uh, Supreme Court of Canada uh, decision that when the police arrest you, it's okay to uh, access the information on your cell phone. I mean, here's this private, here's this instrument that contains all this private information. And they've opened that door. They've said, yep, the police can go in there. Oh, there are limits, of course. And so now they've opened the door. And supposedly, you're supposed to trust the police to, uh, you know, just, just search things within these limits. So they're going to they're gonna look at the entire content of your cell phone, which is basically a computer, and um, they're going to see things, uh, maybe in relation to other things where they want to get you, you know, um, and we're supposed to believe that um, that's not going to have an impact, that they're somehow going to forget that they saw that or not do some other thing in order to access it and so on. I mean, you open these doors. You, and, uh, for example, the Supreme Court of Canada is asked to decide if it's okay to have secret trials against people who are in Canada, are permanent residents, but are not citizens. And they're being accused with flimsy non-evidence, often, of being having participated in the past in so-called terrorist activities. All right. So they develop, the government develops these laws to prosecute them without letting them know what the charges against them are, without letting them know what the evidence against them is. Nothing. Secret trial. Let's, what the heck, let's go back to the Middle Ages and do whatever. And then uh, lawyers will challenge that, and so it goes, it makes it way, its way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has to decide uh, if this is okay or not. Well, instead of saying, of course it's not okay, nothing like a secret trial on Canadian soil can ever occur, instead of saying these very clear statements that are based on legal principles since since the time of the Greeks, uh, they'll say things, well, in some measure, in some circumstances, maybe it's okay, but maybe this particular law goes a little too far. Oh, yes, it does go a little too far, so it needs to be amended, so we'll send it back to the government so they can make an amended new law about secret trials. <laughs> and then the government does some other stupid little fix-up, but you still, you still have what is essentially a secret trial. Uh, now, a third person that you're supposed to trust who's not your own lawyer and who's not yourself uh, gets to look at the evidence in this, in this modified version of the secret trial and, uh, and then can, can, can tell you about that evidence and so on, but not show it to you directly or, or I don't know what the, the exact details are, but they make some amendment of that type. Well, that, that's going on in Canada now. Uh, this is what they do. So these Supreme Court judges as far as I can tell, when it comes to questions like that, of fundamental clarity and justice, have no backbone and no principles. That's what I see in, in their rulings. Why can't they be cut and dry? Why can't they say, obviously, if we open this door from a practical perspective and given everything that we know, there are going to be abuses, and that door is going to widen more and more with the help of you know, these clever uh, crown attorneys and so on, obviously you can't go there. 
uh, and and because we'll be eroding this fundamental principle of personal privacy, which is the basis of how the individual protects themselves against an oppressive government. All right, so we can't do that. That's that's a fundamental principle. Let's apply it and let's protect it. We're the Supreme Court. You know, do they ever make statements like that? Well, I haven't heard any in an awful long time. And um, they're spineless. Um, And without clear thoughts about the building blocks of a fair society for citizens. Um, So what does that tell you? It tells you what I was saying earlier, that these institutions are built, maintained by an undemocratic power structure, uh, an influence of forces, their hierarchies. Um, It's a myth to think that it's a democracy in the sense of individuals actually having a say and actually being able to have an input in significant rules and laws that will affect their lives and how, etc. right? <laughs> You're letting me talk an awful lot, Stephen. Well, you're talking about things of great interest to me, Danny, and I've written an awful lot about what goes on in the U.S. courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court. I address the Supreme Court every now and then with an article strictly on the Supreme Court. Uh, I remember one article I wrote, I recall, I called it, the the article was titled, uh, it had a longer subtitle, but the title was Supremely Pro-Business. I've also reviewed Supreme Court decisions down through the years, major ones, always siding on the side of the establishment, ordinary people really having no say whatsoever, no justice in U.S. courts. Uh, a, f- a frequent topic of mine, Denny, is to discuss political prisoners, people unfairly framed for things they didn't do, many of them serving long prison terms, whether it be for murders they didn't commit, other crimes. And I all, all, always make the statement in many of my articles that U.S. prisoners are filled with thousands of political prisoners, and it's yeah. absolutely true. And a couple of them are friends of mine, one especially, and, Lynn Stewart. Yes, I know, yeah. yeah. And, and also what I would call class prisoners, in the sense that they're in prison because of their class, their economic class. Indeed, and in I would words, point out that Lynn is a free you, woman now. Right, yeah, that's great. That's great. That, that was a wonderful victory, uh, but it was... Hard one, and it was. Uh, well, it was for health <clears throat> for health reasons, Eddie. Yeah. It was. Uh, yeah. I, it, it'll be a year, I believe, uh, this New Year's Eve. So it's very, very close to a year that Lynn will be out of prison. And she and her husband Ralph came to Chicago uh, during the summer, and uh, we got together. And Lynn and her husband Ralph were on this program a number of weeks ago, and I'll certainly have them back. Lynn is still Great. fighting cancer; it's a serious situation. I think she's made a lot of progress, but they let her out of prison thinking she would only live a few months and she would die, and they'd be rid of her. Well, so far she's beaten the odds, and she's very much alive. But it's a very very, very tough situation for her and her husband. It's not easy, but so far yeah. she's been a winner, and I just hope she'll come out a winner for many, many years to come. Right. I, I wrote an article about uh, health and the uh, a theory of health. It's called Self-Image Incongruence Theory of Individual Health. It's, it's on the same website there, Dissident Voice. It's a recent one, and I think it explains how um, these changing circumstances, getting out of prison, can dramatically affect your health in a positive way. 
just like changing circumstances, like going into prison, could dramatically affect it in a negative way. Uh, this is now being understood more and more in terms of fundamental biochemistry of your body and how your um, immune system works and so on. So I wrote an article about that. Uh, some of your listeners might be interested. Uh, it's on that same website. But um, and Denny, just, so, a quick comment, just a quick comment on that. Yeah. <clears throat> I can't imagine how anyone with any health problems, whether they have them going into prison, whether, whether they develop them in prison, I can't imagine how they can cope because the medical system in prisons in America, and I imagine in most other so-called democratic countries, is just absolutely abysmal. I think Lynn complained a great deal about the lack of treatment she got or the way they treated her. When Even when she went to, host, for, to, to uh, uh, take her to hospitalization for chemo treatments, they shackled her, they kept her shackled down, chained, yeah. chained to a bed exactly. to take chemotherapy. And those circumstances of oppression have a huge effect on a person's immune system and internal health. Huge effect. The comment I wanted to make with that, Denny, is my own huh? personal experience. To me, the horrors of hospitalization and just having to go through it because you're ill and then to go through a rehab facility, yeah. that's a combination uh, rehab and nursing home, uh, very, very disturbing. The only yeah. place where you can get the kind of care you want is to get it as an outpatient from your own doctors to be well enough at home. My situation yeah. now where I'm able to work with my own doctors is so different than the experience yeah. that I went through that I found so horrifying. I don't know how I ever could well, have it was prison, wasn't it? I mean, it, well, it was in prison, but to me it felt like being in prison. And had yeah. I been in prison, I don't think I could have survived. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's the point. I want to get back to the Supreme Court, though, because there's something I didn't say. Okay, okay. Oh, can, can I, can I, can I uh, oh, switch back to that topic? Okay, well, you know, we, we were being, both of us, being very critical of the Supreme Court. And, um, and its rulings and so on. But you know, what I find unacceptable also is that law professors in universities who have tenure, who have the expertise to make those criticisms, to study those rulings, and to be harsh and honest and principled, do not do it. They simply do not do it. They toe the line instead. And they excuse this stuff, and they justify it, and they write about it as though these words were um, logical and contained wisdom. It's despicable. It's disgusting to see how law professors and legal researchers do not do their job. And when they do, they do it in specialized journals. They don't make a public fuss about it. They don't let the public know. They don't do it in a way that would have at least a chance to maybe change things other than through the channels of the establishment, which is dead slow and which serves the system that they're a part of. Um, so I uh, think we need to also be very critical, not only of the judges, uh, but also the these uh, independent, so-called independent legal experts that are law professors that do not do their work their important societal work of getting in there and being far more critical and maybe reading just a bit outside their fields and looking at social theory in order to make some of their criticisms, they don't do it. They're, they're um, 
as a whole, service intellectuals that do not do their work. The other thing I want to say also, Stephen, is, you know, something that's been in the media a lot, since we're talking about the system, how the system protects itself, and so on, CIA disclosures of torture. I, have, have you written about that yet? Oh, indeed I have. Indeed I have. I guess you have. You know, what I find uh, remarkable about this is that, you know, the CIA did not make these disclosures in the interest of transparency. They have to have a motive. That We, we have to interpret it in terms of um, systemic reasoning. They, they didn't do this for goodwill and for the benefit of the ordinary person. There is there's a systemic reason why they made these disclosures. I think so. I think I think it's worth looking at that from that perspective. Um, I don't know if you've explored that that idea, but well, I really um, haven't. But of course, they come up with the usual canards that Dick Cheney did on I believe he was on Meet the Press on Sunday. Yeah. Maybe he was on other programs as well, uh, making comments like uh, he'd do the same thing all over again, and then claiming uh, these horrific things that obviously are torture. They claim they're not torture, and that America yeah. is so much safer because of what they did that they found right, real right. information. When we torture, it's not torture. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh, the statement I, I make all the time, Denny, is terrorism is what they do, not us. Yes, yes, exceptionalism. Uh, that, that's, what, that's what it's called, U.S. exceptionalism. But I, I, I try, I've tried to, I've given some thought to, you know, why do they do this? Well, first of all, they obviously, and it's clear, there's a lot of blacked-out material from reports I've read. They don't disclose the most horrible things they've done. They disclose what they want to disclose. That's the first rule. So there's a selection, and so that's obviously political. And so you have to think, okay, what are they trying to achieve here? And I think that they're trying to achieve that um, what they do disclose, most people can't relate to it in terms of it being particularly unjust. You know, because they, they it can easily be cast in terms of it. here's this horrible person they're putting us in danger. We have to get in critical information from them in order to protect lives. You know, that whole scenario. And so they're, you know, and they give it a, a word like waterboarding, okay? It doesn't sound very terrible. It doesn't sound like uh, uh, electrocutions on, on sensitive parts of your body or anything like that. So they, they, they sanitize and cast the context of this torture in order to have it become more and more accepted. So they, they, they release this information at a time where they know that the media and the public are not going to be too totally outraged by it. And so it starts to habituate you to the idea that it's okay to do these things. But also, um, it, um, to have said it, to have come clean, in quotations, in a sense protects you because you were transparent. And so it's not as bad, you know, as if you'd gotten that information through other means, like interviewing some of these survivors and things like that. And so, in, in a sense, it, there's, this, there's this theory out there that if you are honest about your crimes, there's a higher likelihood that we should forgive you. So it, it, they're seeing some of the, the international reactions to their continued warring and their continued 
torturing of people and all these horrible things that they do. And this, in a sense, is a way to protect yourself because you have been straightforward about the things you've done, and but, but only the things that are not as bad as the worst things you've done and only in a particular context. So you've released it how you want to release it. And so now you can say you've, you've been open about it and that goes a long way towards excusing you in a sense. So I see this as a bid for the high officials that are responsible for these decisions to be excused internationally and in, in their own domestic population. I see it as an effort to do that. Uh, possibly that's one of the motives for, me, for, for, for putting this out. Well, of course, um, well, nobody will be prosecuted, either low-level people or right. higher-up people, and the right. ones who are most responsible are the ones highest up. And the buck stops with the president, with George Bush, with Barack Obama. But there's so much to say uh, about uh, the torture report, mainly about what it didn't say, aside from what right. was redacted, Denny. I mean, you can put an awful lot of material in 6,000 pages. But to me, uh, some of the most important stuff is, number one, the practices go on right this minute in what I call U.S. torture prisons around the world, Obama doing exactly the same things as Bush. Torture is official U.S. policy. It way predates Obama and Bush. It goes back generations. But in more recent yeah. times, in America's wars, direct wars, indirect wars, whether it be in countries like Honduras or other Central American countries or maybe African countries or Asian countries, uh, Operation Phoenix in the Vietnam, uh, the horrors we committed against the Korean people during the Korean War. I've written about all of this stuff, Denny. You could only call this stuff torture, whether, uh, including mass murder to go along with it. But horrible. I, I wrote about the direct torture that went on against the Korean people in the 1950s, against the Vietnam people in the 1960s, in the 1970s, the torture yeah. in Central well, America what, what? in the 1980s. Not a word about any of this in the media, right. or, or I'm sure in the Senate torture report. Right. Well, one analyst made a very good point that I'll never forget. <clears throat> he said, you know, torture is not to obtain information. It's to silence people. It's to frighten entire populations and to silence people. Yeah. Uh, and, and to silence individuals and to break them. That's the goal of torture. It's not to obtain. You don't get reliable information. No, you the never other do. Goal, you never do. Which, which, which is admitted uh, by some of the people that were involved. The other important goal is to get, uh, just, just like any, any uh, dictatorship regime would do, to get uh, people to admit the things, whether they're true or not, so that you can say that they admitted to them. Right? Aha, you see, blah, blah. Well, that's, that's, those are the only two real goals of torture. Torture is, is incredibly inhuman, immoral. It's, it's absolutely not acceptable. It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. There are no circumstances that can justify these acts. It's despicable. And that should be our reaction. So what is really frightening is that they disclose this, and we don't have that reaction. What is really frightening is that they're able to disclose this information so soon after the fact, because they know that we live in a society right now where there won't be a popular backlash to what they're doing that is significant. So I think it's also an indication that these disclosures are also an indication 
of the sad state that society is in right now. You know, you, you, you say, a, a state will say it's sorry for its past genocide, like Canada has done uh, re- related to the aboriginals uh, in, in this decade. A state will do that when they know that they've succeeded in, in their genocide, that they've succeeded in their crimes, that it's now accepted, that it won't be re-questioned, and that there's no real powerful leverage to make them uh, for punishment against those crimes. Once they know that, then then part of the the fix-up is to disclose. Oh, indeed, I've written a lot about torture going back uh, to the Bush administration, and uh, the article that I wrote in response to the Senate report, I titled Crime Without Punishment, which is exactly what it is. They, no, nobody's going to lay a glove on these people, and Obama came right out and said it right at the beginning of his administration in 2009. You know, we're looking, we're looking forward, we're not looking backwards, something to that effect on national television. So right. these people get off scot-free, uh, but, 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 but the law is very clear. Uh, there's, there's the 1984 U.S torture convention, any convention that, uh, that America signs in the national law is automatically U.S. law according to the U.S. Constitution, the Supremacy Clause, Article 1, Section 8, I believe. Hope I'm right on that. But it absolutely, the U.S., uh, the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution. So international law says torture is illegal at all times, under all circumstances, with no allowed exceptions. Uh, this is U.S. law. Uh, it goes on anyway, and uh, people get off scot-free. And they're doing it right now, Denny, uh, again, yes. around the world, and, and, and nothing will happen. And uh, no, it doesn't matter whether Obama's president or Mickey Mouse is president, uh, it'll still right. continue to go on. Right, right. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it completely demonstrates our thesis that these institutions, the legal institutions and so on, are fabricated by a system of dominance. And uh, and maintain that system of dominance. It, it, anything else is is just a myth. Uh, and you, um, that myth, though, that does exist and that is widespread, has to be maintained. And that's the only reason that individuals have some leverage is that they they need to maintain that myth that there is justice that there that there is uh, uh, the rule of law and so on. They well, they don't know, Denny, because they've never been in, in, into the judicial system. If they ever got into them right. themselves, they would find out that they've been living with a myth all their lives. I wanted to make a comment before about torture that I forgot. In the article I wrote, and I've used this before, I quoted two U.S. Supreme Court decisions. They're old ones. They go back to the 1920s and 1930s, but there's never been a Supreme Court decision to override them that basically says any evidence obtained from torture is inadmissible, and also right. uh, basically uh, saying torture torture is absolutely illegal. One of the Supreme Court decisions compared torture back in the to days the when these guys had of, of, the, of the Inquisition. Yeah, back in the days when these guys had backbones, the 50s and 60s, which was related to uh, more democracy in society. It was a period where individuals, you know, felt empowered and uh, were pressuring their local representatives more, and so on, um, and so in those days, it, it you could you could see the reflection of that in the courts as well. You did have these these strong rulings occasionally. Uh, there hasn't been anything like that in decades uh, in Canada. Um, it's it's sad. It's sad. Um, I don't know what to do to spark some change. Um, the discussion we're having is certainly part of that. But uh, we need to keep pushing forward, and I'm, I'm sure that, that things will change. 
but they'll change because of an uh, an implosion. I mean, the, the, the this uh, oppression of people, of, of citizens, and all of these things that they're setting up, they're always going further and further in their lies and in their structures and in their institutions, the police state. They're, they're always going further and further. So sooner or later, there has to be some backlash, whether it's from the outside or the inside, that will rectify this a bit, because otherwise people will be living in this dystopia, as, as we are now to a large extent, and, and will not be able to have lives worth living, uh, where you can actually control and, and have an input in your community to some degree and not, not have all your ideas and, and all of your emotions and everything uh, washed out of you and replaced with this canned material from the schooling system and from all these institutions that control you. Um, I mean, there's got to be some eruption, some breaking free, and it, it will come from their insanity being pushed too far. And it will probably more likely come from the outside than from within the U.S., for example. Um, maybe some of the uh, forces that oppose complete U.S. control of the entire planet will find ways to resist more effectively uh, and will preserve their markets and will be able to do things uh, that will create some, some backlash. Um, I don't know. We have to wait and see. Time will Yeah, we've got to wait and see, Danny. I would guess if it's going to happen, it'll happen somewhere in Europe. But I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. When will Americans uh, wake up and realize how badly they've been oppressed and hurt, their rights denied, literally freedom stripped away in plain sight, and they don't even notice what's going on or seem to care in any way? They just go on with their lives. But when will, when will they wake up? We had eruptions in America in the 1960s and early 1970s. Can this happen again? I think it can happen happen again, but I see no signs of it now. So I ask myself all the time, how much will people take before they react, maybe violently, to the things that are going on? Because they're so much worse now than they ever were in, in, in the 60s and the 70s, but yet people yeah. aren't doing anything about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're Stephen, just about just out of time. Checking on time, um, how, I, th I thought we had an hour. Is that, we have, is we, that we, right? We, we, we have an hour, but the hour is almost up. Okay, <laughs> It does go very fast, Danny. A quick final comment. The music means we're out of time. Quick comment? Oh, I see. Okay, so I, I, I was... Um, we, I guess we didn't start at the time that I thought, so I was getting worried about how, how to plan our final words. It's, it's been really... <laughs> well, I would say nice. this. Danny, it's always wonderful having you on. I look forward to having you on in the new year. I'll email you when I go off here. We'll set up another date, and hopefully I'll be in good health, better than ever, and we'll have a rousing discussion. Danny, my great thanks. I wish you a happy holiday, a happy new year, and certainly better times ahead, especially for you. You deserve it so much. Well, you better be healthy because otherwise I'll be angry with you. I will do my very best, I promise. There'll Thank be a you, backlash Danny. if you, if you uh, have these health problems again. I'm telling you now. I'm warning you. <laughs> I work every day at staying healthy. I do say that. Anyway, we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks a lot. Stay Thank good. You.